This morning's second reading comes to us from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. May God open up to us an understanding of this word. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John. From now on you will be called Cephas, which means, when translated, Peter. Let us pray. Oh God, in, in that we hear this word, give us also eyes to see this word in Christ's name. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, this is part two of Who's Counting? the series I'm doing on the meaning of life. You're already asking me for the punchline. It's gonna take some time to get there. That's the point. More than four weeks, by the way, but that's all the time I have to give it. And the question I think we all must ask is, why is the preacher preaching now about the meaning of life? I mean, we just went through Christmas, we're into Epiphany. Well, Epiphany is about the light that comes to us and reveals to us truth. And so my hope is that now's a great time for us to look more deeply into the meaning of existence and life itself and the meaning of our own particular lives, hoping that maybe something epiphanic will break in on us and we can see. And it starts with me every day. I put together what I'm going to preach. I'm praying for that epiphanic light to break in to give me some insight. 
It turns out that the cultural and religious foundations that we have built in our culture these days is crumbling, maybe collapsing. The lack of civic virtue, just plain civility, the loss of our values and the deeper sense of character. Now it's all about me, myself, and I, and my own individual rights, rather than something greater than me, something more about the common good that doesn't matter. All the data shows, however, that the more it's about me, myself, and I, the less well we become. We're facing rampant alienation, worry, despair and meaninglessness leading to anxiety, addiction, and a rise in suicide up 30% in the last 20 years. These are symptoms, people say, and I agree, that reflect the illness that comes from a loss of purpose and meaning and social uh, interaction. Without those, we don't flourish. Without those, we hardly live. Last week, I pointed to Jesus as a template for all of us of how one finds this meaning of life, and that is that it begins with a search. We must search for it before it finds us. And as a preacher, it's no surprise that I'm making the case generally, not specifically, that will come more later, but generally that the meaning of life comes from being in relationship with the creator of life, that is, God, Yahweh. And that in being in relationship with God, we also discover not only whose we are, that is God's, but who we are as one of God's own. That's the beginning. It's also the end. But in the middle, we have to figure out specifically what does that mean. And again, I want to say, we don't do that without searching. Just like Jesus, I said, who really didn't know for sure, and even then I think he wrestled with it until he knew he finally had to go to the cross, who didn't know for sure what his purpose and meaning was until he turned 30. He was a carpenter growing and learning and searching just like us. He was all human. All divine, yes, but human, just like we are, figure that out. He didn't have any more insight into the omnipotent omniscience of God than we do, even though he was God's son. He too had to struggle, just like we do, with meaning. And at 30, he comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit comes and lights on him, and, and then God's voice comes and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that begins his public ministry and his purpose as he goes for the next three years throughout all Judea proclaiming God's love. The same is true in this morning's passage. Two disciples are walking with John the Baptist. They saw him as maybe the Messiah, the leader. And as they're walking along, John the Baptist points to Jesus who's walking down the road and says, look, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because I, I was, he was before me. 
I didn't know him, he says, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed as Israel's Messiah. What were they looking for following John the Baptist? And I'm guessing what they were looking for is the same thing we are. We're looking for it wherever we can find it, from gurus to preachers, from presidents to snake oil salesmen, from talk radio hosts to infomercials. We are searching for something to fix us, desperately searching for meaning and a reason for life. Reminds me of that iconic scene in Forrest Gump when after having his heart broken, he decided to do what he does well, to run. And so he just says, I'm gonna go run. And he runs down the driveway and then he runs through town and then he runs through the county. But by that time he had taken notice and several people started following him as he ran. And so he ran all the way through the state and he ran to the Mississippi and he ran past the Mississippi and by that time, a whole lot more people were following him. He ran for three years, 15,000 miles as you add it up. And then after, after 15,000 miles, he just stops after crossing a bridge, symbolic in itself, turns around and says, as they're all looking at him, all waiting, where are you gonna take us? What's the meaning? What's the point? What's next? He looks at him and says, I'm tired, I'm going home. And leaves them all standing there after giving their lives and running 15,000 miles, still waiting for the answer. We will follow anybody if they seem to know where they're going and seem to promise us the truth. In this morning's passage, those two disciples were following John they were expecting and looking for the Messiah, as was everyone else in Judea. They kept waiting for the second coming, the second coming of the Messiah, the Davidic Messiah, after David's rule 700 years earlier, the Messiah who would come and liberate Israel from the, from the hard, suffering hand of Rome. When John points out Jesus, they think this is him. He. So hoping he was, they immediately left John, who obviously was not, and started following Jesus. Did they know who he was? No. They were hoping. They began following on the search. It's easy for us to say, especially Presbyterians who tend to take Calvin's words a little too literally, that we are all predestined, that is, providentially already predecided on whether we will be believers or not. And if you read Calvin's words, it's not exactly what it's saying, but that's how it's interpreted, that those who are Christians are Christians because God has predestined them to be Christians, and those who are not Christians are predestined into hell and damnation. There's a long reason why he said it that way, but remember he's in a fight with the Catholic Church, and some of what he said was to, to try to hold Presbyterian Protestantism against Catholicism, which was a mistake in itself too, I admit, but that's the way it was in those days. And so we think, oh, okay, uh, it's all decided. 
but the Holy Spirit, in my opinion, and as I read the text, doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit may call us to follow, but it's, a, it's, more, it's, it's not a predestined call. It, it still gives us choice. As human beings in the image of God, we have still freedom. If we take away our freedom, we no longer have that image of God in us. So when we choose God, it is only because, yes, God has chosen us, but God never chooses us in a way that takes away our choice. The Holy Spirit does not lead us around like a dog on a leash. Instead, it works with our humanness and our consciousness and our and it, it nudges us and beckons us and it doesn't push us or shove us. It courts us. It doesn't draft us. It woos us like a lover that, that moves us, not forces us like a powerful boss. That's what it means to be human, created in God's image. And therefore, that's also what it means for us to search and discover what it is to find meaning and purpose. I love this story of how Jesus sees through those two disciples that immediately left John and now are following him. And he turns around and confronts them and asks them, what do you want? I mean, he probably said it in a more pastoral way, like, what do you want? But isn't that the question? What do we want? Of God and Jesus or of anybody, what do we want for ourselves? I want to go to heaven when I die. It's a fair want. I don't want to suffer. I, I want to find peace. I want forgiveness. I want to be able to give forgiveness. I want my marriage and my family to be well. I want someone to fix my life and give me purpose and meaning and hope. Jesus, we're hoping it's you. But when Jesus asked them the question, what do you want? Did you notice they didn't answer it? They dodged it. They avoided it saying, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And I've, as I read it, I think it's probably a colloquial question as you would ask in, you know, jargon of today. Um, hey, brother, where are you at? Or, you know, um, where are you coming from? Like, what are you standing on? Who are you? Where are you staying? And Jesus then invites them, just like us, invites us saying, you want to know the answer to that? Come and you will perceive it. You will see it. Follow me and then you will learn. I was told all my life not to, not to leap before I look. Don't, don't leap before you look. look. Look before you leap is the positive phrase. All my life I was told that because I was always leaping into stuff before I was ready. And, and that's a fair direction, only Jesus seems to say, leap before you look. Go before you see. For only in, we, in as much as we leap into this following of Christ and God do we come over time 
in the going of it, in the leaping of it, in the follow, do we come over time to see what it is we finally understand? True in Jesus' life, true in ours. He's calling us to live into it and to risk what we know now is a hope, a promise of a greater truth down the road. Every scientist does this with every experiment, risking what they already know for the sake of finding something new in the process. It's what everyone who has faith does when they grow into that, risking what we already know for something greater we can't know Jesus until we follow Jesus, and we can't learn who we are until we give ourselves over to that search. Dad, gummit, I wish there was another way. Can't I just graduate from college and know? Can't I just reach a, a certain level and then I've got it? The passage ends with, so they went and followed Jesus and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him for it was about four in the afternoon, which means it was the end of the day. The Jewish day starts at dusk. The end of the day and the start of a new day, four in the afternoon, symbolic for sure. And Andrew, maybe the second evangelist next to John the Baptist, goes out to his brother Peter and says, come on, we found him. And Peter shows up and Jesus knows him by name and says, yep, they call you Simon, but from now on you're gonna be Cephas, that is Peter, meaning the rock. And at that point, Peter began his journey of learning who Jesus was and in fact learning who he was in his new name. The next three years, those disciples spent working out their salvation with fear and trembling not agreeing with Jesus that it would end in Jerusalem on a cross, expecting Jesus to save them militarily and with power, not with suffering and death. And they still didn't know for sure at the cross until after the third day when Jesus was raised again from the dead and came back to them, and then they saw. Oh, yes, now I get it. Their mission and ours is to give ourselves over to the journey and process of discovering who we are and whose we are, that is our meaning and purpose, even if it risks our lives. In fact, it's the only way to find life. Dr. Martin Luther King, which is this weekend as we celebrate it, started out as a very reluctant prophet. He knew he needed help to change the culture of racism, but it was not until Rosa Parks sat on the, sat on the seat in the bus and refused to be moved that he felt himself being called to help his people do something. And so he organized the bus boycott with others and, and after he did, after a few days, it kept going, and after a week or two, it kept going, and the longer it kept going, the more he got calls from people saying, I'm gonna kill you, you know what? You're gonna die, and so is your family. 40 calls a day he was getting, threatening his life. 
Then late Friday night on January the 27th in 1956, Dr. King was 27. He, he slumped home after another meeting, found Coretta asleep, went into the kitchen, poured himself a cup of coffee, paced around, sat down, stood up, paced around, the phone rang. A sneering voice on the other end, leave Montgomery immediately if you have no wish to die. It's midnight. King said his fear surged and he hung up the phone, sat down and with trembling hands sat at his kitchen table. That was the prelude to the most spiritual experience in his life, he says. He wrote later, I was ready to quit. I had nothing left. I was ready to give up. My cup of coffee sitting untouched before me. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided to take my problem to God. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. And the words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory, he wrote. I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right, he prayed, but now I am afraid. The people are looking for me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it alone. And at that moment, King says, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I would hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. And almost at once, he said, my fears began to go and my uncertainty disappeared and I was ready to face anything. Even three days later, when a bomb racked his house, miraculously not injuring any of them. And then he said, strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly and my religious experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face it. A mob formed when they found out. They gathered around his house, demanding justice and vengeance. And King mounted the broken porch of his home and looked out at them and said, we must not hate. We must love. Remember, if I am stopped, he said, this movement will not stop because God is with and in this movement. So now go home with this glorious faith and radi radiant assurance. And the mob dissipated, their mood disarmed and their ears ringing with the message of nonviolence. Eleven years later, King speaking before an audience of this epiphany said, it seemed at that moment I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. He found his meaning and purpose at the end of his rope. It came as a gift but he had to ask for it. It cost him his life. But what would it have cost him and the rest of the world 
if he had not said yes.